Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to another uh, episode of our podcast called The Edge. I'm very happy today to have Mr. Paul Simmons back again. Um, we're not going to do Paul's life story because you can catch that on our Breaking Down Zero Trust episode um, with Paul. Um, Paul's been involved quite a lot with the SSC Forum. He came along recently and, and presented at one of our meetings on identity, and I'm sure we'll get into some of that today. Um, but I, I guess, Paul, the first question is not going to be tell us your life story. The first question is really going to be about kind of about zero trust. I mean, it's obviously you came on our first podcast. We talked about zero trust. It's been a while now. I think it's like six months. Um, we can certainly see there being traction in the US. We're reading stuff in the press. We're seeing stuff. We're certainly seeing a lot of stuff going on with ransomware and cyber threats. You're probably more connected to the European market and the UK market, CISOs and stuff like that. I was just curious, what are your comments on Zero Trust? Do you see it moving here? Is it gaining traction? Is it starting to be something people talk about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think people are certainly talking about it. Whether they know what it means is a, is a, a different question, I suppose. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It's certainly you know, the buzzword of the moment, I suppose. Everyone wants to know what it means, what it means for them, what it means for their business, and more importantly, what they should be doing. Um, helped, I suspect, by, you know, the edict out of the US federal government that thou should be doing zero trust. Um, and therefore, it's you know, it's getting onto the executive's radar, if you like. You know, it's, it's a bit like the year, to, you know, if you're old enough to remember year 2K, you know, no one, no one cared about year 2K until all of a sudden it got onto, uh, you know, the federal agenda. It got onto the government agenda. It was added to your end of year corporate filings. And then all of a sudden the executives knew about this word, you know, you know, the millennium bug or year 2K. And all of a sudden, guess what? IT got a lot of focus um, and security got a lot of focus. And Zero trust, I think, is is getting going the same way. You know, it, there's been a federal edict. We're now seeing, therefore, a lot of executives starting to say, "Well, what is that? What does it mean for my business? And what do I need? Or you know, what does my business need to be doing?" Do you see? You mentioned you mentioned the uh, federal edict, and it has you know a huge impact on not only the government, mm -hmm. the DoD, so on and so forth, but their their contractors and, and vendors that are associated in their ecosystem. Uh, but you also mentioned Y2K. And, uh, you know, that the, in the filings, there was mention of these things. Um, do you see some event or something pushing it on the enterprise side versus the government side? Or you see the government side that, you know, momentum there cascading down into uh, the enterprise side? Uh, the answer is possibly. I think what we're seeing actually is two fundamentally different approaches to how you tackle zero trust emerging. And there, there's very much a federal um, methodology that people are starting to use, um, which is sort of the zero trust network architecture, as opposed to businesses, which I suspect want much more of a zero trust architecture. In other words, not done at the network level, because Ultimately, businesses are all about collaboration. Um, you know, there is no such, you know, we, we used to joke that, you know, back in the 90s when we started all of this stuff, you know, it was really easy, wasn't it? We all had, you know, corporate computers and corporate computers only. We had limited internet connectivity and you were, you were, you know, staff on payroll. And if you were staff on payroll, you got an account. And if you weren't, tough. Um, and that was really easy. 
And the problem is, ever since, you know, the turn of the millennium, I suppose, um, we've changed. You know, businesses are about collaboration. Businesses are about joint ventures. Businesses are, are employing people in a plethora of different ways. Um, you know, staff on payroll in some companies are becoming, you know, the minority. Um, you know, there are companies out there, large global corporates that have two thirds of their identity and access management system, their users, who are not staff on payroll. They are contractors, they are joint venture staff, they are et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's before you get onto all of those outsourced services like security guards and caterers and all of those people that, you know, that just doesn't include those. So I think what you are seeing is, is corporations, businesses are adopting much more of how do we actually implement this fluid organizational structure and is zero trust going to cut it for us in that respect yeah it seems like um you're, what you're describing here is this concept of enterprise as a service so instead of owning you know the the knowledge base the knowledge workers you know you mentioned the contractors the security guards even down to the, you know the application levels we see that with SaaS and pass and some of these other services you're stitching together these services into this hub that uh, you know the corporate aspect of it is very small but you know they're they're as a service around them um i would be interested to see if someone would uh give us a framework down the road because it sounds like this could be something you know 5 10 20 years down the road as we evolve into this hybrid workforce these things start to happen more and more often um but i haven't seen anyone really write about um this concept of enterprise as a service and it, and it really hitting the mainstream yeah, it, I mean, I think it's coming very fast. I mean, it, the other thing that's driving it is not only zero trust is cloud. Mm -hmm. You know, the amount the amount of stuff that we are literally putting in cloud, and, and again, you know, just it's outsourcing. You know, I, I think we talked about it in in uh, in the first podcast we did together. If you think about it, you know, Jericho originally coined it as computing outside your perimeter, which. You know, philosophically, from from you know, if you want to explain it to an executive um, who is non-IT, you know, they glaze over when they you say cloud to them. You know, explain it as look, it's just computing outside your perimeter using someone else's compute resource. Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, when the term cloud came along, I have to admit, I hated it. I mean, because we had public cloud and private cloud and hybrid cloud. And I'm like, is private cloud just my data center? Why are we renaming it something else? But I, I think one of the things that excites me about Zero Trust is it, it's, it's, for the, it's the first time I've seen something come along that isn't just about technology. And this is not going and buying something off the shelf. This is going to take humans, cultural changes, philosophical like conversations blue sky thinking it's going to take all of those things kind of combined to make this happen it's it's a project that's going to be not only coming up from below from your technical teams but now it's starting to come down from above from your c levels and from your execs and that is the time when i've seen any type of project be successful if it was driven by the it team there's a good chance it would fail if you didn't get buy-in from above and if, if it was driven from above and your IT or infrastructure team didn't agree with it, 
they would block it because they're just difficult types yeah. of people. Yeah. So for me, this is coming from above and from below. And hopefully when they meet in the in the middle, they'll be a bit better than the channel tunnel that wasn't quite lined up. <laughs> um, and and I, I agree with John that, I mean, the CSA are working on stuff, and I'd like to ask a little bit about that in a minute, but the, C, the CSA are working on kind of this zero trust training and zero trust exam. And we, we talked a little bit about um, with Jim before when we interviewed him about kind of having a maturity level and and testing companies against that maturity level. And I can see there being uses for kind of getting insurance for that. You'll be able to say to your cyber insurance, we're, we've reached maturity level four or five. But I guess the question is, is the CSA are doing a lot of zero trust stuff. I'm, I'm a little bit involved in some of the documentation and the exams, and I know we're doing some stuff. Me and John are talking to some working groups coming up. But is it purely going to be just the kind of technical stuff or is it going to be a lot bigger? Because I I think when we spoke on one of our SSE forum meetings and you presented, you let us have a document that was for CISOs about zero trust. Yeah. So what is it exactly the CSA are, are kind of doing? What's the plan? What are CSA doing? You'd have to ask Jim, I suppose, for the chapter and verse on what they're doing. But I mean, my take is that they are very intertwined. The whole zero trust and cloud is really important because cloud to do cloud really, really well, rather than just outsource your internal services, if you want to do all the extra value stuff with cloud, actually the whole concept behind zero trust plays into it really nicely. So there is a huge amount of synergy uh, going on, in my opinion. And of course, you know, there's also a lot of CSA is predominantly a US-based organization. There is there is a lot of drive out of US corporations and US federal, as we've just said, for zero trust. Um, so it's sort of a perfect storm for CSA, if you like. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I mean, like I said, I'm doing some stuff on the on the documentation writing for for zero trust, and there are people from all over different spectrums from from different companies. There's people who've got writing experience of the documentation, which I've I've not got. I mean, I've not written those kind of documents before, but I've read plenty, mm. and and for me, the aim is to make them readable and therefore usable because a lot of these documents that come out, like NIST, as much as I've read NIST. It is they're hard to to read. They're like legal documents, and and the training's pretty good from the CSA, and it's pretty straightforward. So I'm happy what Jim's doing. I, I just wondered, and we'll ask him when we get him on next, like what this maturity model kind of thing is going to be. But it's it's definitely I see it getting traction. There's definitely talk about people starting their zero trust journey, and and if they've not, and and I mean, I guess I know that you're excited by identity is a nice way of putting it and you do a lot of work on identity and like i said you come along to an ssc forum meeting recently and talked about identity for me i see that is the starting point for pretty much everything we do and, and whether it's cloud or zero trust or whatever it might be what what are your thoughts on that and i i, I guess i know the answer but i'm going to ask you anyway <laughs> um so I could I could do the politician bit. I'm going to sort of answer it a slightly different question. Um, so so first of all, I think I think whatever you do, um, and whatever you you know whether wherever you start, the biggest challenge out there is: do you have the resources to be able to do it? Do you have the architects to be able to do it? Because what I am seeing out there is you know the big boys, and 
I used to I used to be you know employed as a global CISO for some very major household names. Um, and so I always had, you know, large teams around me working for me or other large teams within the organization. So we were the people who would architect, would set standards, would, you know, put in radical new architectures. Um, the problem you've got is there's a whole class of people out there who are sort of the next tier down, if you like. And this is actually not far off the big you know what i call the big boys the the global 200 500 whatever who actually don't have those kind of teams in place and that's the problem i think you've got you've got executives saying well what should we be doing where should we start you know is it identity is it zero trust is it network architecture is it this that or the other and they don't have the teams with the the resources or experience and actually, most of the time, it used to be really easy because you'd ring up your tier two suppliers. Um, and in the UK, that's, you know, CompuCenter or SoftCat um, and say, my board says I need some security. What do I need to buy? And they turn around and say, and they turn around and say, here's a firewall and here's some anti-malware. Job yeah. done. Big tick. Auditors are happy. Everything else. The the problem you've got is actually those people do not have, I mean, either the, the tier two resellers um, or the tier two companies don't have the resources to know where to start. And that that if you that if you like is the problem. I mean, for me, you alluded to it. Yeah, identity is a is a good place because if you don't have a handle on identity within your business, and that's not just people identity that's and what we call entity identity which is a mouthful and a tongue twister but actually is the example of entities of people devices organizations code and agents and a whole bunch more um and you need to understand because the trick to doing zero trust properly, in my opinion, is to be able to make contextual risk-based decisions. And to understand context, you need to understand not only is it the person who claims to be Paul Simmons trying to access this from somewhere, you need to be able to understand a whole load more if you're going to do really good zero trust which is to say yeah it's paul simmons he's on a corporate device he is um geolocated here he is um linked with a known degree of certainty to that device um rather than just he only just passed password authentication on the fifth attempt and it was a pretty weak password anyway yeah um so you know, is it biometric authentication? Does he have it? Does he have a corporate mobile phone with him that he actually was able to use a fingerprint on? Can we do step-up authentication um, if he's trying to do something that uh, is out of the ordinary? All of that stuff is really, really important if you're going to do zero trust properly, and more importantly, if you're going to do it in as frictionless a way as possible, because that's the challenge. In any large organ, in any well, in in any organizational full stop, you've got to make it frictionless as as you possibly can. 
Um, yeah, otherwise you're going to have your users jumping up and down saying it's it's too much of a problem. And if something's too much of a problem, they don't use it. I mean, I, I'll go back to a simple analogy. I mean, I remember passwords first coming in, people first having to use passwords. And as soon as you made them too complicated, they just wrote them on sticky notes and stuck them on their monitors. Therefore, you actually went yep. backwards. What was the point? Um, so I, I agree with you. I mean, I think identity is critical. I think knowing posture and knowing more about the person and not having it just appear to be the person because it, it's too easy now to spoof a user, to pretend to be a user. And there's some stuff on LinkedIn I, I saw recently about like AI bots being able to fake people's voices and stuff. And that that mm. just is really, really scary. But I mean, this is a this is a topic I think we could go on um for a long time. But you you've raised something that we're gonna we're gonna pivot a little bit here. I mean Obviously, you were a CISO at some large corporations, and I don't want to say that you're you're older than some people, but you've been around <laughs> a while, and therefore you were a CISO, I think, before really they even existed. You may have been very early on in, in that process. We talk a lot about reporting lines for CISOs. I'd like to ask you kind of a twofold question. One is, who did you report to when you were a CISO? And the second part of the question is, who do you think CISO should report to? Because there's conversations about the CFO, the CIO, the CTO, the board. And, and is it black and white? Should it be the same in every organization? So, so last question first, the answer is no, it should not be the same in any large in any organization. Because it depends what your business is doing and it depends where things are driven for and from and where you need to report to to properly effect change. Um, and that will vary totally by organization. Um, where should they report to? Ultimately, I mean, my opinion is that you should be reporting probably unlikely that you're going to get a CISO on the board. Should you have a CISO on the board? Um, probably, because actually there are huge swathes of companies out there where if they have a cyber incident, they will go bust. Um, so, you know, that sort of says, well, if if cyber is that critical to your organization, should they be on the board? And the answer is uh, probably. Um, however, do you have a set of CISOs out there that are qualified to sit on the board? And I would probably argue they are few and far between. Uh, there are, there are, they are out there. But I, I, you know, you could probably count them on two hands. Um, where should you know how? The question for me is how high should they report? So, for me, if you want an acid test, go to your chief executive, your CEO, or your chairman, and say who is your CISO. They should not only know the, their name, they should have spoken to them recently, and they should probably be getting reports from them, certainly as part of something like a quarterly business report or whatever, where, where all the other business lines report. There should be a, a CISO report. Um, if that is happening, I would argue probably your CISO is at roughly the right level. The problem is in most organizations, you do that and they won't know and they'll say, oh, no, it's handled by IT. Um, or, yeah, I mean, but we get that report as part of IT um, and they don't know who they are. Um, you know, so when I started on ICI back in 2001, you know, 
as part of my first week, it was to go and meet the CEO and sit down with him and have a chat and everything else so that, you know, we'd met each other and we knew each other, um, you know, and he, he sort of glibly said to me, you know, well, you're the person who's going to keep us secure. And I, <laughs> and I, and I, and I turned around and, uh, you know, thought well, this could be a career limiting move. Um, I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm the, I'm the person who's going to mitigate the damage when you get breached. I want to I want to reverse on that a little bit. Um, you know, we talked a lot about reporting relationships. We talked about zero trust. We talked about, you know, kind of this early stage of this process we're going to go through, enterprise as a service. As we look at um, the role of the CISO now, their life expectancy, because it is, you know, short. I think the it's about two years. Um, the question is, who should lead a zero trust effort within an organization. Uh, obviously, medium size is going to have a different uh, view on that. But um, a large enterprise, should it be the CISO leading that uh, charge or should it be somebody else? Should it be an organization? Should it be a, a group of people? What are your thoughts? It's, it certainly shouldn't be the CISO. It is not a security project. It, it isn't. It, it, security almost, I, I would say, Almost security has nothing to do with it. I mean, obviously it does, because security has something to do with everything. Um, but ultimately, it's not in security's bailiwick. Um, who should lead it? It should be business driven. It should be, because ultimately you're starting, if you, you know, if you want to say, where do I start? And the answer is you should be starting with a discussion with the board that says, where do you want to be and what do you want to be doing in five years' time? And that's a really difficult question because there are a lot of boards out there who won't be able to give you an answer. And then, then you have a discussion that says, and so what is your risk appetite? And trust me, I've only ever found one company that does risk even remotely close to well um, and consistently across all business lines. Um, and so, you know, those are those are your two starting questions. Um, because that though the answer to both of those should dictate your zero trust your your IT strategy, let alone your zero trust strategy. So that should dictate your IT strategy and that should therefore dictate, okay, what are we going to architect to make this business demand happen? And if and if you know we if the answer is, well, we intend to move to 70% joint venture within five years then absolutely you should be doing a zero trust strategy and you should be looking at an identity strategy to go along with it that actually allows you to onboard swathe 70% of your users potentially that you do not own or manage. <clears throat> I think that's, that's, I mean, that's the thing not a lot of people are talking about. They're talking about zero trust. It's a product, it's a technology, it's ZTNA. It's driven by uh, the CISO, um, the whole business side of this equation. It, I just don't see it discussed. And I think that is a, um, it's unfortunate because you're absolutely right. It's, it should be a business driven project. The CISO should not be leading it because I think once the CISO leads it, um, it's viewed as an IT project or security or a yes, dictate. Project. You're yeah. trying to slow me down. It's not in, it's not put in the realm of hey this is an opportunity for us to be um, faster more agile uh, we can onboard more people and do it in a secure way we can partner with another company do it in a secure way 
that I think is is missing from this uh, discussion. Yeah, I mean, I I think for me, it's certainly not a technology. You don't go and buy zero trust off the shelf. Yes, technology can help you. Technology can help you with all kinds of things, and zero trust being one of them. But for me, and I and I've talked about this before, and we we spoke to George Finney about his book and about the human element. We've talked about um talked about culture and how culture changes. Now, IT and security, independently or together as a team, can't change the culture of a company. I mean, that has to come from above. That if you're going to change and start thinking about things with a zero trust mindset. It doesn't matter if your IT team understand it and your security team understand it and they go and buy a product and they put it in. If people don't understand why it's being done, they won't buy into it. I mean, I remember putting passwords, like I said before, putting passwords on people's accounts. All they saw that was as a blocker and slowing them down. And and then you did MFA and all they saw was that there was a blocker and slowing people down. So as John said, if, if zero trust is driven by your IT or by your security team or by both, it's going to fail. It needs to it needs to be a mindset shift. It needs to be a cultural change. And if you don't have buy-in and it's not being pushed from above, I don't think it's going to work. And I said earlier on this when we were talking that it is being pushed from above and from below, and there's a good opportunity that makes it work a bit better. But those two opposing ends need to line up. If you yeah. if you're pushing from above and your your security team don't agree, or the security team are pushing up and your kind of sea levels don't agree, you're going nowhere. You, it's going to fail. And I think the world is in such a different place now that these projects can't afford to fail. I mean, there are statistics about ransomware is going to be ten times more like valuable. People are going to make so much more money out of it. Cyber threats are increasing, and I mean, the U.S. government, and I'm going to ask you this question. The U.S. government recently said that they were thinking about making it illegal to pay the ransoms for ransomware. Now, I get the concept of that partially. I mean, I still think a lot of these ransom attacks are funded by governments and people like that that aren't going to care whether the ransoms are paid or not. But I, I do get the concept that let's not pay the ransom. And again, I'm going to ask you a twofold question. I'm sorry, but the first question is, do you think the US government will make it illegal? And the second question is, if they do, will it follow suit in the UK? So I think the reality is that the big business lobby will actually make sure they don't make it illegal. Um, I think they will water it down to the point that it, it's basically what it is at the moment, which is we strongly recommend you never pay a ransom because all it does is encourage the criminal. Um, and if you go to the FBI or anyone else um, in law enforcement, that will be their starting point. We do not, you know, we do not pay ransoms. Um, but in reality, of course, we do. Um, you know, when push comes to shove, um, then, you know, we do it. You know, we we talk to, you know, the US government has just traded um you know, I can't remember. Is he a drug, a really nasty arms dealer? Yeah, he was. An, he was. He the... was. Yeah. The oh gosh, what was his name? But yes, uh, he was the the dealer of death. And in fact, there's a movie based on him with. Uh, oh yeah. Anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you you know the case. Um, you know, for Nicholas a Cage. <laughs> Sorry. You know, we we've, we've traded him for a basketball player. Um, yeah. 
you know, do do we pay ransoms? Well, we don't. But there's a case in point where we've done a trade um, to, uh, you know, because it's a pragmatic solution to a problem. Um, so the reality is that, yes, that's our starting point. Yes, we shouldn't pay. Yes, you know, you get to the point of saying, well, oh, OK, our backups aren't as good as we thought they were. Ah, okay, our business is going to be down for five weeks until we get everything back up um, at a cost of going under, at a cost of X amount. And at the end of the day, boards are boards are there to do risk calculations. So if you say my choice is I'm going to pay out $5 million in a ransom versus a $10 million business hit, um, and potentially going under and potentially damaging a whole bunch of long-term relationships and contracts and everything else, then boards may well say, look, we will go to the right people to make sure that we do this properly and in the safest, most risk-free way of doing it. And there are brokers out there who can broker this for you. Um, and yes, we will end up paying a ransom. Um, because that is the pragmatic solution. Yeah, I mean, I, I, for it's a really difficult moral equation because I get the concept of not paying the ransom. But as you said, if it comes to paying the ransom or going under, businesses are going to always choose paying the ransom. I mean, clearly, the idea is there to encourage people to up their security to be more proactive to try and block the ransoms coming like ransomware coming in so i get it however it's not an overnight fix i mean we've talked me and john have talked about this before you can't just wave a magic wand and go ta-da all ransomware is blocked it's going to take time these large enterprises even if they decide today we're going down a zero trust route or we're going to do something else to block ransomware it's not overnight. It will take 6, 12, 18 months. And the problem you've got, and we spoke to Chase Cunningham about this, the problem you've got is your supply chain. So if you protect yourself, it's not a castle in moat anymore. You just don't build your walls a little bit stronger and make that moat a little bit deeper and ta-da, you're fixed. You may throw tens of millions of dollars at protection and, and, and upgrading your technology and, and doing all the right things. But if you're dealing with a 10-person company in a remote part of the world that doesn't have the same kind of funding, then the targeter yep. is going to come in through that open door and bang, you, you've had it. And that's why we go back to like you were talking about zero trust is it's all about risk. Look at where those risks are. If you've already got a relatively secure environment, but your risks are those third parties, they're those VCs you're working with, all that kind of stuff, then maybe the money needs to go in that direction. Um, but John, was there anything you wanted to add before I pivot again to something else? No, I think um, you can pivot. So, so my, I guess my my next question is: We talk a lot about ransomware, and there's a big focus on it, and there's supply chain attacks and all of those kind of things. What do you see as the biggest threat, say, in the next 12, 24, 36 months? Like, where do you see people needing to focus on cyber protection? I think everyone. Well, so everyone is saying ransomware is 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 the big one at the moment. Um, and why? Because the bad guys can make more money that via that route than anything else. Um, you know, it's as simple as that. We've joked 
<laughs> and you know, as they say, all jokes have a, a good because they're based on truth. You know, we've joked for an awful long time that the bad guys do better to return on investment calculations than the you know the, the we ever did. Um, and you know, they know that's that's where they can get the money. Um, end of story. And eventually, they'll pivot onto something else. That's going to make you know. Once we get a handle on on ransom, you know, ransomware, um, to a large extent, um, then they'll pivot on to something else. Um, so, you know, what's going to be next? Who knows? Um, I, you know, I've I've constantly been surprised. I I I can I can remember sitting around in about ninety two. Um, you know, people, people. This is an audio conference. You can't see the grey hair. Um, and I worked in in uh, I worked at uh, Jet in Abingdon. Um, and Abingdon, if you don't know, it is where Sophos um, was born. Um, and the guys from Sophos used to come in as this little native company and sort of say, "Viruses are a really big problem." And we used to sit around over coffee and say. Is it? <laughs> Are they going to be a big problem? Do we really need to spend all this money on antivirus? Um, and we were having those debates, um, you know, back in back in ninety two or whatever. Um, you know, and as we know, the things have come to pass. And yes, virus is a real problem. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where if we knew what was coming next, we could almost proactively stop it. But I don't think any of us oh, yeah. do. Or, or you and I could invest in it and the the the, the fixes for it and make a lot Absolutely. of money. Absolutely. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna <laughs> well, I think. I think. Oh, I think until ransomware is fixed, it's just going to be the thing. It, to your point, yeah. it's easy. It's an industry. Um, you know, the the organized crimes involved in it. Uh, nation states are involved in it. It's a it's a revenue generating uh, machine for them. So yeah, it, until until something changes, the economics of it change. It's just going to continue. Yeah. But 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 recognize it is flavor de jour, and yes. things will change. It it will not be here forever, and and we will you know the bad guys will pivot into something else. So I, I I'm going to ask you a bunch of fun questions, but before I ask you kind of a fun question, my last question is really about kind of the economic climate. I mean, there's there's talk that a recession's here or a recession's coming, and and I'm not sure if you believe that's the case or not. Um, but you've been doing what you do for a while. So what would what would your advice be to a CISO or a CIO of how to deal with the climate now? Like we're going into a recession. What would your advice be to them about how to kind of maneuver it in the best way possible? <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I've seen a lot of ups and downs and normally driven by, by corporate share price. Um, and... The interesting one is, I mean, my advice would be, first of all, do not be too precious about your role and responsibility. Um, the reality is that there are lots of business leaders, whether whatever business they that think their line is the most important line in the business, and it's what keeps the business afloat. Now, I would I would argue, and I'm biased because I'm an ex-CISO, that security probably does fall into that category. Um, however, you know, when there are cuts to be had, there are cuts to be had, and they will be across the board. And security doesn't get a free pass anymore. Um, so deal with it and and work out how to cl cut your cloth accordingly for your organization. Um, you know, the, the problem comes actually, you know, when I, when I was 
had a, a team. I mean, you know, my my team. I had 127 people reporting in some shape or form directly to me. Um, and therefore, you know, if we needed to cut 10% of the workforce, that's easy. The problem is when you've got two people reporting to you in a smaller organization and they say, well, you've got to cut one of them. Yeah. You know, that's a fit that, you know, that's a 50% cut and that severely, severely restricts your ability to do stuff and, and make a difference. And, and that's when people end up getting, you know, sleepless nights and because we all want to do a good job in our organizations at the end of the day, people are, you know, especially security people, they're in there for the right reason in my you know what everything i've seen so they want to do a good job and if they're told you're going to lose 50 percent of your headcount that effectively because you've only got two people working for you then actually it's really difficult to keep that up and it does get you know people do get sleepless nights and and everything else because of it so you know mental health is really important in in whatever job you're yeah. in um okay so one fun question uh, I love food. I'm sure you figured that out. Um, <laughs> people listening to that this podcast will know it. Um, hey, can we put a twist on this? I, I want to before, and we can edit this out if needed. How how often have you been in Chicago? Uh, could you uh, are you do, you do you go to Chicago a lot? I I used to when I worked for Motorola. Motorola was headquartered in in right. uh, Schaumburg. So, so Jay, I was, uh, was going to spin this. Uh, you know, what's the best restaurant you've been to in Chicago? Okay, or place? I'll ask a different question then. You ask the Chicago one. So sounds good. Um, yeah. So so best restaurant in Chicago. I wish I wish I could answer that. Um, I've been to a, been to a lot. Is is the answer? They used to, and I and I can't remember what it was called. There used to be a really good steak joint, but it was hidden away in a little strip mall. Um, in the middle of nowhere and my team introduced me to it and i doubt even if you planted me in chicago these days i could even find my way back to it or even remember what it was called but that that was some of the best steak i have ever had um so yeah i mean there there's but there are some great steak places in um in in chicago See, I've never actually been to Chicago, but I hear that the pizza, like their deep pan pizza, is a, is a, is a must. Now, John, you've obviously been. Is it is it worthwhile? I think you've also been to Italy. Um, is it as good as Italian pizza, or is it just more like a pie? It's more like a pie. I mean, Italian pizzas are not American pizzas, and Italian pizzas are two different things. Um, I thought I knew what an Italian pizza was, <laughs> and then and then I'm like in Italy, like hey. That's not like I, that's not a New York pizza. Uh, so they're they're very two different things. The the cool thing is uh, more American uh, restaurants have adopted that Italian style, so you can have both that you know Americanized version, and then you have your Chicago style, which is deep dish. It's amazing. It's all about the crust. Um, there's even a Detroit style pizza, and uh, obviously on the West Coast we have our California style and back Northwest, so on and so forth. Pizzas like a universal thing here and uh, each region has a different take on it so i'm gonna have to try a chicago pizza but paul my question to you is more more around travel which is another thing i love doing i mean i, I i've l been very lucky through my career to travel and it sounds like you've traveled so where's the best place you've ever been and why oh various various places out there um 
I'm going to sp- I'm going to spin the question if you, it, it, slightly. So first of all, I would argue if you like travel, I was introduced way back when in about 2000 ish at ICI um, to the airport game. If you haven't played the airport game, um, so keep a record of how many airports you've travelled through, which is quite an interesting exercise. I'm up to about 105 different airports wow. at the moment. Um, best place in the world. I spent three weeks in a four-wheel drive in the bush in Botswana. Oh, nice. Um, sleeping in a tent at night um, in the bush. And we literally spent three and a half weeks in a four-wheel drive. Um, and we saw so much game. And we got to the Victoria Falls. And we went into Zimbabwe uh, and Bulawayo and up to the Matopas. Probably that was one of the best places in the world um i have told this was quite a while ago now um i took my my eldest daughter who's now in her 30s um she was two at the time um so we took a two-year-old on this trip um, and she knew all her animals by the end of the trip um but i'm told actually most of it has changed out of all recognition you couldn't today do what we did back in the uh, yeah yeah i was gonna say i mean i i i've never been on safari and it's something that i've always wanted to do and it's something that that we're looking at doing now and it i like when i travel i like to backpack i like just to put a bag on my back and 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 it's kind of soak up the culture soak up the local thing and i mean don't get me wrong i try and stay in nice hotels i don't stay in like two dollar hotels if i'm in asia i try and stay in relatively nice but you can for like five dollars yeah but i i want to do it i'm not a resort person i won't go and stay in a resort for two weeks and not leave the resort and just sit by the pool i can't do that i mean i've been had the luxury of i lived in japan for a while i've been across asia and i really enjoyed it and safari is one of those things that i had an opportunity 15 plus years ago to do it and i really wished i had because health and safety and all these kind of things nowadays keeps you further away from the animals and all of that. And I get the reason why I'm not, I'm not saying it's not safe. Uh, it's the right thing to do, but it's just, it's changed now. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but see Africa, Africa is, um, as the, 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 sort of the other, the other place in Africa is, is, uh, Uganda, uh, which, which is wonderful. I, we got the opportunity to, uh, as you probably know, I'm a, I'm a kayak instructor. Um, so we got the opportunity to go and kayak from the source of the uh, the Nile at Lake Victoria uh, all the way down to a place called um, the Explorers Camp um, and then down to Jinja, um, J-I-N-J-A, I think if it's spelled correctly, to what the sort of the world professional kayakers call one of the best play spots in the world, which is a thing called Super Hole. Which nice. is a which is a large grade five standing wave, um, great place. Um, so if you like your kayaking, um, you can go onto YouTube and Google Simmons and Ginger and kayak. And we, uh, I I put a very expensive thousand pounds worth of video camera then on a rock in the middle of the <laughs> Nile. <laughs> on a tripod, and we left it running for about an hour and a half while we played on this wave absolutely fantastic thankfully the camera survived i will definitely be googling that but i I mean i want to thank you i mean i want to thank you for the first podcast 
I want to thank you for coming on the SSC forum and talking about identity. The members of the forum thought it was great. I want to thank you for the advice you've offered me. I, I know we've had coffee and we've met up and I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for this podcast and I'd love in the next six or nine months for you to come on again and talk about how things have changed because it's an ever ever involving area to be in. We obviously throw out some ideas. We talk about what the future is going to look like, but it's always good to kind of circle back and think, okay, were we right? And I mean, with the Jericho Forum, it's almost like you had a crystal ball. You did forecast a lot of these things that happened. So talking to you and hearing your insights are great because I actually think you're probably going to be right. Uh, but before we wrap, John, any anything from you? No, insightful conversation. And uh, for those of you listening, go back about 15 minutes where Paul is talking about uh, zero trust and this this movement as being a business project. It needs to be led by business. Uh, it needs to be framed in business terms. Um, for me, that's the key takeaway if, if you're out there listening to this podcast. Thank you, Paul. Very welcome. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge. <laughs>